Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And we are wrapping up Move Over Miss Cleo week. Yes, it's been a good week. It has. Today, I'm going to bring you the case of Andre Diagle. And his case happened to be solved with the help of a psychic. I had We had a medium on Sunday. Uh-huh. Today's case is about a psychic, a psychic reading. Love it. That helped solve this case by, uh, her name was Rosemary Kerr. I'm excited to hear it. Yes. Well, let's just jump in with both feet, everyone, shall we? Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. I will say that some of the details that happened on Tuesday, June 9th, 1987 are going to remain a mystery, but based on the investigation, we are able to piece some things together. So if there is a bit of information that's us just speculating, I will draw attention to that, that, okay, this is just speculation and we could talk about maybe some other possibilities, but the end result is still the same. I guess what I'm saying are like the outlines of the story are, are very clear from the investigation standpoint. Gotcha. Okay. This isn't like one of those cases where we've got the wrong person or anything like that. It's, it's closed. It's a closed case. Sometimes I forget to respond because I'm nodding my head. So if you guys ever hear silence after Charnel's talking, it's me just, bobbing my yep. head over here. I'm Amber's like, uh-huh. bobbing. She's with us. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we just yep. cannot hear your brain rattling in your head. Just picture me, mouth slightly open, yep. that nodding. Is exactly yep. what you were doing too. <laughs> Deep in thought. <laughs> oh gosh, that's probably gonna haunt them now from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Great. You kind of just every look time like there's silence, they're gonna picture me. She looks like she's deep throating the microphone. That's fine. Just bobbing, yeah. open mouth bob right towards it. Way to go! Oh, and a new career path has begun. <laughs> Don't add us about that. She's she's kidding. Yeah, <laughs> she's I not know? for sale. <laughs> oh shoot! You could fetch a fair price. I just want you to. Oh, know. thank you. Oh, there's thank no shame you. in that. All right, let's talk about Andre a little bit, shall we? He was described by his friends as being really outgoing and energetic and really likable. Um, This was a quote from his brother, Chris. He was the kind of person who would help people. To give you an idea, we were driving together once. It was at night. We saw someone walking on the side of the road who looked like they were in trouble, real messed up like, like something had happened to them. Andre stopped. I wouldn't have, but Andre did, end quote. So he's like, you know, I, I fully admit. The situation was a little scary for me. I probably wouldn't have stopped, but not Andre. He didn't hesitate and he stopped. He was a helper. Mm -hmm. He was 27 at the time of his murder. Tall, handsome, well-built, with dark hair, dark eyes, and a mustache. All right. I got to see. Of course, because he sounds exactly Mm -hmm. like your type. That's for sure. He's got facial hair. I know. (laughs) I know what you like. Andre, what's his name? Tall, Diagle. D-A-I-G-L-E. Yep, as soon as you started throwing out the tall, the oh, handsome, yeah. I gotta in, see. In his photographs, he's confident, he has a big smile. He was working as a carpenter 
doing some renovations um, in partnership with one of his friends named Joe Lapinto. And Andre actually lived at home with his parents at this time. He was house-sitting for his brother Chris, who I mentioned earlier, because Chris was on vacation. When the day's work was done, this is where we have to fill in some of our own blanks, okay? We know okay. we know that he went to work on June 9th, okay? He went to work, his carpentry work, he did that with his friend Joe, and then would have went to his brother's place to feed the cats and get cleaned up after a day's work, okay? But then he got back into his black Ford pickup and drove to Chi-Chi's restaurant for some dinner. Love Chi-Chi's. Oh, me too. On Veterans Memorial Boulevard, and he was meeting his other friend, Nick Shelley, for dinner. So they're just going to Chi-Chi it up. A night at Chi-Chi sounds Mm -hmm. amazing. It does. Afterwards, the two old friends decided that they're going to find a pool hall and go play some pool. Seriously, so perfect. Oh my gosh. Right. Like that sounds like a great This is evening. a date we should go on. Yes. Cheese pool. Yes. I would love to do that. I know. Actually. Me too. I really love playing pool. I'm not good at it, but I love Same-sies. it. Same I am not good. I get angry at myself yeah, when yeah. I'm not good, but I do enjoy it. I, it's funny that we expect ourselves to play well when we don't own a pool table or play regularly <laughs> or play but we're like we will be naturally talented at yes. bar pool same with bowling yes. I always want to do really well mm-hmm. and then I get super mad when I don't which is just ridiculous when I'm golfing I have to remind myself you don't get to get out every single day so please stop holding yourself to such a high expectation because yeah. Yeah. I can get real pissy with myself me too I have to say like stop pouting Amber you're right. an adult <laughs> <laughs> stop pouting amber you're an adult the kids beat you it's okay it's fine it's fine they use bumpers assholes (laughs) last time like my nephew my seven-year-old nephew beat me and like you know yeah that'll crush the ego inside i was dying yes absolutely oh so they're going they're actually driving around looking for a pool hall bar okay they're driving down veteran memorial highway and they find this place called Mitchell's Lounge. Now, neither one of them had ever been there before, but they're just, hey, here we go. They decided that they were going to play for beers. Sounds perfect. Sure. Loser pays. Absolutely. So his friend, remember he is with his friend Nick Shelley. So Nick won the first game and he watched Andre walk over to the bar to buy the first round of beer, you know, cause, uh-huh. because he lost. he lost. And he noticed, Nick noticed a woman at the bar. And she was having some drinks. She was small, had a round face. She was brunette. She wasn't unattractive, but I didn't find a lot of information that said she was attractive either. But she introduced herself to Andre as he was waiting for his beers. Now, each time Andre went to the bar, so I'm assuming he kept losing. (laughs) He kept (laughs) paying. Poor guy. Yep. (laughs) The woman um, who said her name was Thelma would engage him in conversation. Okay, so basic Thelma over there. No, I'm just kidding. Basic Thelma at the bar, yep. Now, when the men were about to leave, she stopped Andre and asked him for a ride. She didn't have a car. She said she needed to get home and check on a friend of hers that was pregnant. Remember what I said earlier about Andre. And he would do anything for anybody. Mm -hmm. Yep. So. I'm already, like, getting the uneasy vibes here. As you should. Okay. Yeah. Thelma. Frickin' Thelma. Jesus. Don't ruin that name for me. I like that name. Uh, it is you a know, good Thelma name. Thelma and Louise. Right? What's not to like? Well. They do die. They, <laughs> they do kill themselves. But okay. other than that. But it was for the sake of their friendship. I don't know. It was 
It was they a were good the story. best of friends. They were. They were. Of course, Andre agrees. Sure. He's going to take her. He asked if Nick wanted to meet somewhere for another drink after Thelma, you know, after he dropped Thelma off. And he's like, nope, I'm good. Um, I've beat you enough tonight in yeah. pool. <laughs> I'm taking so, my victory and yep. I am leaving. Yep. So Andre and Thelma leave together. Nick goes the other way. Now, n- later, Nick would recall that Thelma had an unsettling way of avoiding his eyes, turning her face from him. And at the time, he kind of shrugged it off, like maybe she was just shy. Awkward or yep. something. Yeah. Yep. Thelma got into Andre's truck and they drove to an apartment complex in Kenner. The apartment building also was very, like, kind of like Mitchell's bar. It was just, like, very underwhelming. It's not well lit. It's just there, you know, just a part of the town. This is one aspect that we can only speculate about because we don't actually know. But Andre actually accompanies Thelma into her apartment. Now, we don't know if it was for a drink. Was it for something sexual? Or was he just making sure that she got in? Okay, we don't know. And Thelma has actually never indicated why he went in there. Andre, yes, went into her apartment with her. But we do know that from what Nick said, she was going to her apartment to check on her pregnant friend. Right. So the remainder of the story, what we know about this, or are from the confessions of the men that I'm going to tell you about that were involved here. A man named Charles Gervais. Gervais. Yes, Gervais. He was almost the same age as Andre, so almost 27, and he was nothing, nothing like Andre. You know, with as handsome and tall as Andre was, Charles was none of those things Uh, at all. More of like a Danny DeVito type of guy. For sure. Love him. Love Danny. But he is a shorter man. Yes, he is not Andre, who was handsome, helpful, athletic, hardworking, those sorts of things. None of those things. Right. Andre has a close-knit family. Gervais was short, thin, scruffy, alienated, a loner who was raised, according to his lawyer, by an abusive father who had been in trouble since his early teens. Oh, so you've described zero good qualities about None. him. Just, just picture, I'm not sure there's one single redeeming quality for this man. Gotcha. Where there are plenty for Andre, there are not for Gervais. Gervais had been out of prison just a few months when... Andre goes into Thelma's apartment, and there Charles Gervais is with another man named Michael Phillips. So they were already in the apartment. They were already in the apartment. Mm-hmm. So Gervais is just fresh out of prison. Right. Okay. Fresh his, out. Yeah. His prison garb might not even be washed yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. He's fresh out of prison. And he was there because he was a, a thief. He had done some time for burglary. Gotcha. And he was living with Michael Phillips and Thelma Horn in the Ken- Kenner apartment. So Michael and Thelma are an actual couple. Gotcha. Michael Phillips and Thelma Horn are an actual couple. And Gervais is just sleeping on their couch. Now, piecing together the story, the three stooges here. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like some of this might be a mystery because they... Sounds oh, like yeah. are probably not completely honest about things. Absolutely or... not. And I actually wrote, like, literally the details will vary depending on which one of the morons you talk to. Okay, that's kind of mm-hmm. what I was picking up on is that mm-hmm. we're going to get some different yep. variations of the story. But it doesn't change the end outcome. Yep, no matter what the story really is. Gotcha. It does not change the tragic end outcome. Phillips, who was short and slight, like Gervais but wore his lank blonde hair down to his shoulders, 
had also been in trouble before. So he was, in the words of his lawyer, quote, just a petty criminal, a completely unremarkable person, end quote. (laughs) His own lawyer. There is no bigger dig in the world than you are a completely unremarkable person. This might be my most favorite quote I've ever heard. For sure. It's so professional, but it's it's such a savage, professional way to say somebody doesn't really fucking matter. It's nice to see that some maybe some of these lawyers representing people like this struggle too. Yeah. So often we see that they don't. Yeah. But this guy, this lawyer's literally like, like, I have nothing good to say about my client. He's a petty criminal and completely unremarkable person. (laughs) He does not matter in any way. Right. That's 100% what that says to me, what that quote says. They're like, oh, His existence is so unimportant (laughs) that I can't find one thing to say about him. You're unremarkable. That is my new burn. So, from oh now yeah, on. I'm so stealing this. <laughs> <laughs> so Phillips and Thelma, his girlfriend, met Garvis supposedly, according to both of them, at what's called Fat City Bar. These just keep getting. I I like that. Yeah, that's Fat really City good. Bar. That's right um, up there with the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Oh, I loved the Ugly Tuna yeah. Saluna. Yes, that's so true. Is this him, though? No. I don't think so. <laughs> I apologize because I did forget to mention that this case takes place in Louisiana. Okay, gotcha. That is where, where we are at here. So, apologize. Now you know. We forgive you. Thank you. I must have skipped over that part in my notes. But anyway, so these three... <laughs> This trio of hoodlums, they were, by some accounts, heavily into drugs. Although at the scene, or in their apartment, there isn't any drug paraphernalia. Nothing like that was discovered. But again, accounts differ as to which which person you're talking to. Some of them said that sometimes they liked to enjoy LSD. Others were like, no, we were into cocaine. So... Little of this, little of that. For sure. It's possible they just like to dabble in it all and... Whatever. However, all three do agree that they fell under the influence of Gervais. So Thelma and her boyfriend, Phillips, were probably not going to do what they end up doing had it not been for the influence of Gervais. So this tiny little man. Yes. That's like. Could manipulate this tiny woman and this other tiny little man. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, because what happens is Gervais moved in with Phillips and, and Thelma Horn and drew them into his plans for future grandeur, okay? The three of them would acquire a vehicle, a little bit of seed money, and an arsenal of weapons. You know, casual Saturday night. <laughs> Sounds like it's, something we would do on a Tuesday. It was just like us last night, <laughs> you know? When I invited you over to my garage to watch football, yep, yep. we just decided, you know what? Let's, let's just take over the world. Let's, let's get a vehicle, some weapons, seed money, and an arsenal of weapons. Yeah. Totes norm. Why wouldn't we do that? I don't it's know. It's totally fine. Because we ended up having a couple of beers and just sat in lawn chairs in my garage. <laughs> like normal that's, humans. That's what we yeah. did. So, but it sounds like Gervais had a diabolical plan. I'm picturing oh, like gets, Pinky in the brain. Oh my God, me too. I was just going to say that. 
Like right. he's the brain and Pinky's like, oh, uh-huh. you know, what Let's are we going to do? Let's take over the, yes. Well, what are we going to do today, Pinky? <laughs> yes, yep. yes. Plan to take over the world. And not only were they going to get acquire those things, a vehicle, some seed money and weapons, they were going to set out for the Houston area, you know, good old Houston, Texas. Shout out to Houston because our we, analytics yeah. tell us we have a lot of listeners from there. Yes. And they're going to take over a vast prostitution ring by wiping out the mafia family that currently controlled it. If you could see the deepness <laughs> of my eye roll into the back of my head right I now. I think that they look, it, your eyes just went they so literally, deep back They and might down. not come back. I'm not sure. I think it fell into your sphincter, actually. <laughs> and there yeah. they shall remain. <laughs> right. This is already sounding so dumb. They're going to take over... A prostitution ring that's run by a mafia family, you guys. The three of them. NBD. These three tiny I can't morons. Even, I can't even come up with the right words. No. Unremarkable people. <laughs> that is yes, what it is. Yes, that's These perfect. three totally unremarkable people are going to take down a mafia family for their prostitution ring. Okay. And just on a whim. Like, you know what we should do? Yeah. Guys. Yeah. First, Let's steal a car. Some, yeah. Second. The seed, seed money. money. We got the seed money. I don't even know what that is, but I just like <laughs> saying it. It's like, oh, we need that seed We're money. We're just going to rob people <laughs> yes. of money. Oh, my gosh. This is as dumb as the well-deserved plan. You I know, agree. Yes. With the, it's, yep. it's just like, oh, so we're going to take over his yacht. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, and, and it gets even more senseless because Gervais decides, before I can trust you, you guys have to. You got to give me a blowjob. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I that's where this was going. That was probably Thelma's role in all of this. Oh my I don't gosh. Know. It's just so dumb. I could see it getting even more to that level or how something. How it escalate, escalates is Gervais is like, you know what? You got to prove yourself. And how you're going to prove yourself? You're going to show me that you are man enough to kill someone. Oh my gosh. So this is how. This is a freaking initiation. Oh. Andre loses his life as an initiation into. This warped, my like game of this guy of now after you kill him and show me that you're man enough to kill. We'll take. The we're mob gonna take on. Houston. Oh my! I cannot with this. Where's yeah. Gervais? I need to find him <laughs> behind bars. Okay. But, oh my gosh. Yep. Furthermore, it's just like at what point in time do these other two idiots not just be like? No, that's probably yeah, not like, how yeah, I'm going to Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. It was decided, according to statements by both men, that Thelma would lure a victim back to the apartment. So Thelma had actually gone to two different bars without getting a victim before they oh. dropped her off at Mitchell's Lounge in the early evening of June 9th, 1987. And Andre was so nice that he... Yep. Oh. Yep. I think these make me more angry than any because they're so senseless and someone loses their life. Yes, And I just have to let you guys know, like, it bothered me because I know this was a case in 1987, but Andre did not get very much media coverage No, I can't even find his picture when I went to look. I know. It's, there's so few things. I was able to find this really uh, great um, article. It will be linked. I don't want to scroll up in my notes right now because I will lose my place, (laughs) but it'll be linked in our show notes that helped piece the story together. 
but it was it, it was just so tragic to me that this man so senselessly loses his life because of these two of idiots little that dwarf. think that they're yes because two of the seven dwarfs are going to go take over Houston's prostitution ring this plan is horrible. It is. It and it is. And now I'm going to trigger alert you because the rest of it is like it's Aww. sad. It's so sad. Okay. So Charles Gervais made his statement later to Kenner detective James Gallagher one week after the murder. This is what we know. Quote, after she brought Andre into the apartment, Thelma told him that she had to go see about a friend who was pregnant. She left and went up to her bedroom and he fell asleep on the couch. Probably from the alcohol. So if this statement is true, I'm thinking that he, she probably lured him there under the pretense of some sexual interaction. Okay. And so he was just going to wait for her on the couch to go check on her friend. He had been drinking beers, so so the other two maybe weren't like right didn't make their presence known. He goes on to say, "Me and Michael passed the hammer back and forth, (gasps) arguing over who was going to hit him first. After about four or five hours of that." Michael hit him four times and ran to tell Thelma. Then he gave me the hammer and told me to hit him a few times because he was moving around and moaning. I hit him two or three times. He was moaning real loud. So Michael hit him four more times with the hammer. We thought he was dead. We dragged him into the hall and he started moving again. And Michael got the hammer and hit him three more times. I told Michael the hammer wasn't working, so we got a coat hanger and tried to strangle him. Then we cut the wire off the vacuum cleaner and tried to strangle him with that while jumping up and down on his back. It was nearly dawn by the time they had finally succeeded in killing Andre Diego. They turned down the air conditioner as far as it would go so the body would not start to decompose. The next day, they wrapped Andre's body in drapes and stuffed it inside the same homemade couch on which he had fallen asleep on the night before. They had a homemade couch. Pallets? I don't know. Then they nailed boards across the bottom to keep it secure, so they literally put him in a couch. Oh my gosh, this is so sad. That afternoon, the apartment manager made a surprise visit and sat on <gasps> the couch. Oh. Gervais God. explained, yeah, Gervais explained that they were moving out and that the dark red puddles on the floor were spilled paint, which they would assured him they would clean up. After they loaded the sofa into Andre's trunk or truck, excuse me. Remember he drives a black truck? Yeah, yeah. They drove it out to I might say this wrong, so I'm sorry, my Louisianians. Manchac Swamp, where they dumped his, dumped it. They dumped the couch with him in it. They dropped Thelma off at her mother's house in Kenner, only a few miles from the apartment, and headed to East New Orleans, where they took a room in for a cheap hotel to lay low for a while, got guns and money by burglary and theft for their big move uh, to Houston. Yep, they it was time. Yep. It's time to yep. make the big... Step uh, one, they're man enough to kill, so now we've got to move on with the plan. Oh my gosh, these people, I mm-hmm. can't handle them. I cannot. It's. It, I, I didn't find the other statements of how he died, but it is evident that it's obvious that he suffered. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, they didn't know what they were quick. doing. They're like, oh, yep. this isn't working, let's oh, try this. And arguing, you hit, you hit him, no, you hit him, no, uh. you hit him. This is a horrible no, death. It is. It absolutely is. And then to be on your stomach with a coat hanger and then a wire from a vacuum cleaner around your neck Ugh. while some, two people are stomping on your back. 
Oh my god! I mean, you're defenseless. Like, how are you? Yeah. After being hit many times in the head with a freaking hammer, you know, I just it was so brutal and just absolutely for nothing. For nothing. nothing. That's the part that makes me so upset. It's for nothing. Because they then move on to burglarize. They get money and they get guns. Like, that's what you needed to go in your plan to go take down the mafia in Houston. You didn't need to kill him to go move on with your plan. So then, when Andre did not show up for work the following day, Wednesday, his friend, remember he was a carpenter with his friend Joe Lapinto, called Andre's parents to find out, like, what was going on. By that afternoon... They were all in a state of of panic, of course, because this is not like Andre, as we often see with our missing victims. Like They are not just these irresponsible people. Andre's parents called Chris, their son, who he was house-sitting for. Chris actually was visiting another one of their children in... Missouri. So Chris was like really, really close close with Andre. So they had shared a bed, shared the same bed when they were growing up. They had Aww. a very large family. They grew up in just like a a small um, house together. So they're they're a very large, close knit family. Let's see. Before Chris started working as an electronics te- technician for Cox Cable, he and Andre had gone into business together, installing ceramic bathtub enclosures. Actually, so they're very handy. So. Chris and Andre are really close. He's like, no, I have not heard from him. He's, you know, watching my cats. Like he would, if something was wrong or he wouldn't be able to be home, he would call and tell Chris. Mm -hmm. By 11 a.m. on Thursday, when Andre's whereabouts were still unknown, Chris was on his way back with his wife, Virginia, and their three kids so that they could join the search for him. When Chris arrived at 11 p.m. that Thursday night, he found a large group already gathered in his parents' home. Uh, A sister and her husband and kids had driven in from Pensacola, Florida. Joe Lapinto was there, as was Nick Shelley. Fifteen or twenty people in all right away are looking for Andre. Because he was so loved. So well-loved, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, they worked out a strategy. First, they would print off flyers with Andre's photo. They then divided the city into sections where they would fan out, posting flyers in convenience stores and other public locations while searching street by street for the missing truck. The Jefferson Paris Sheriff's Office had been notified but provided uncooperative. What? Sheriff Harry Lee, with Andre's mother sitting right there, said, how do we know that Andre didn't run off with a hooker to Mississippi? <gasps> Are you kidding me? I wish I was. They claimed that they put out what they call a BOLO, which is be on the lookout for. But whenever they stopped a cop to ask about Andre, they never heard of him or his truck. So they didn't even do that. What is the reason for the disregard for him? I would think that race has something to do with it. If That's you, exactly what I was thinking. It's 1987. I don't, I'm not going to make assumptions, but we aren't ignorant here, people. I mean, we've seen it. Look Mm -hmm. at the Brandon Tina case. It's Mm -hmm. disgusting what the police did. It is. is. And at this point in time, he's been gone 24 hours. They're like, nah, he probably ran ran off off. with a hooker. But why did we even have to add that? Exactly. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, this is so sad. In front of his mother? This is so sad. So they're on their own, and which is actually the next quote that I wrote from Chris. He was like, we felt we had to do it on our own. We intensified our search. Nick was the last person to see Andre, so he and I went to Mitchell's, Mitchell's Lounge to ask around. Maybe they knew a woman named Thelma, but the people were incredibly hostile, like they would start trouble if we didn't leave. So the people at Mitchell's Bar would not help them at all. What in the world? Yeah. 
I'm getting the impression that this isn't the most upscale neighborhood for sure, but still, this was uh, this is another quote. Then we sat a while in the parking lot to see who went in, who went out, and I actually saw Michael Phillips walk across the highway. I remember because I said, who's that unsavory looking character, which is something <laughs> we would say. We just we, have we just that. described someone as unsavory. We did. We did in our private text messages <laughs> yes. to each other. That is so true. I love how he is just getting like the comments about him are just so awful. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Literally nothing good nothing has been good. said about him. No. Nope. Not him or or Gervais. <laughs> He's unsavory. This unsavory looking character. It's like, but I turned away. If I had kept watching him, I might have seen him get into Andre's truck, but I turned away. Oh, wow. Yes. So now I'm going to talk about Elise Diagel. Um, and she has a married name. Elise Diagel McGinley. She is one of Andre's sisters. She decided to have a psychic reading. But she did not know that her brother Andre was missing and had oh, like, really? no, they had not informed um, informed them yet. She's in California. She was living in California. Okay. And so when she had this psychic, she had a psychic reading because a coworker, she worked in like the auto rental, an auto rental agency. All right. And her coworker was like, let's go get a reading. She'd never dabbled in the paranormal before, but. She's living in, you know, the new age in 1987 in California. And so she's like, sure, spiritualism was really, had many varieties, still does, of course. And she's like, ah, this is great. But she's like, it's just a lark. Like she was going into it like this is really NBD. Right. You know, just for fun, not to be taken seriously. She decided to call her mom and tell her mom about the psychic reading when her mom was like, oh my God, your brother is missing and has been missing for two days go back, go back to the psychic. Cause she had got it done like a week before and just for fun, yeah, you know, yeah. and then was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to call mom. I'm going to tell her about it. And that's when her mom was like, you need to go back to that psychic and just see, like they felt like they were on their own. So at this point in time, any and everything would happen. And I think that things had started to happen from her original psychic reading that she was like calling to tell her mom about. And that's why they were like, go, go back and get it done. Sure. Elise made a decision when she found out that Andre is missing, that she is going to, she's going to go back and get that reading before she flies home to help for the search, which a lot of people I think might not have thought of that. Like, I think they legitimately probably would have just jumped on a plane, been like my, especially with as close as this family is and been like, my family needs me, but she was willing to stay back and get back into that psychic uh-huh. to, to get read. Her decision would have a nearly miraculous result. Within hours of the psychic's reading and guided only by the psychic's message, members of Elisa's family would track down and capture her brother's killers. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Legit psychic. Yes. And we'll get into her. Her name is Rosemary Kerr. We got to give these psychics credit because look who helped and right. look who didn't help right. in this Exa- case. Exactly. This wasn't a situation where they gave the information to the police because exactly. the police are not helping at all. And I'm not bashing all police officers. Of course we not. know some amazing ones, but this this is just sad though what happened. Yep. Yep. And what's even more miraculous is the fact that this isn't the type of family that ordinarily would buy into, if you will. A psychic reading like their dad was a Julie, a, a Julie, a jewelry salesman. Like they have this big he had um, he had four, bro- four brothers and three sisters. 
they grew up in a three-bedroom house. All the boys were in one bedroom. All the girls are in another. Like, Andre had this very normal but close-knit big family. Mm-hmm. So, and Andre's actually the youngest boy. So, from at an early age, he had shown how athletic he was, okay? Um, actually, his team won the state football championship when uh, uh, Andre's senior year, oh, as nice. a matter of fact. He played the guitar. Like, just not the type of people that would typically go see a psychic, you know? Sure, sure. The psychic reading was set up for Saturday afternoon, and he went missing on Tuesday. So Elise was told to bring a photo of her missing brother and a map of Louisiana. All she could find by the way of a photo was a group shot from the 1960s of all of the brothers. So he's in it, because this is 1987, but he's young. Uh-huh. And they had their long hair and bell bottoms, of course. Love it. So Rosemary Kerr, the psychic that I mentioned was, to Elisa's surprise, a small, chubby woman, unexceptional in manner of dress. These, okay. these descriptions. Yes. I am She's living like, for them. This normal, this small, chubby woman. Like, she didn't, I don't know if people, like, expect psychics to be, like, have this grand Cleo. dress. Yes, Cleo. that's so true. Like, how you see Cleo. Vibrant colors. We are not giving anyone any leeway in appearances um this i love this article we're not, or we're wherever not. you got the or yeah, book or whatever it is yeah it's it it's was amazing this, this one and only really well written article that so good i found snippets in the media just saying like yeah these people were caught yeah they were sentenced but i mean nothing that like no investigative discovery this is you know this one is rich with i love incredible it. detail yes yes so <laughs> you're gonna like this one too She was said to have looked like a run-of-the-mill housewife. Yep. And Kerr herself actually describes herself as a little old Italian grandmother, which I just love. That's adorable. So we have this little plump lady that's like, I'll, you know, I'm a psychic. Yes. And she had discovered her gift at the age of four in Brooklyn. Very nice. Where she grew up um, as an immigrant Neapolitan family that lived above their father's candy store She had awakened one night screaming from a nightmare about a house in flames. A few weeks later, an uncle who lived across the street locked his wife and child in a bathroom and set their house on fire. (gasps) So this incident in Rosemary Kerr's eyes set a pattern for her life. She realized that she could get information intuitively from the psychic realm and that her gift would be tied to families, particularly those with children in danger. She later discovered that she had a special talent for finding missing missing persons. This This is is, amazing. Yeah. This is a quote from her. I don't want to be told anything about the person or the circumstances. I don't even look at the picture. I just close my eyes. First, I say a prayer, a protective prayer, calling God down for, for this all comes through the power of God. Then I give things out exactly as I receive them. Sometimes I don't even remember what I said. That's why I always tape my readings, end quote. Oh, chills. I did get chills. As What's a her name? Of fact. I'm, I'm gonna, Rosemary Kerr. I'm going to be looking her up later. She's darling. Kerr closed her eyes and began rubbing the picture during the psychic reasoning with, Elu, with um, Elise. Soon she complained of a headache, a horrible headache. She said, my head is killing me. Next, she saw a black car or truck, which this confused Elise because she said, but Andre drives a white car. Kerr screams black. And there, in quote, and there is a person with long blonde hair near him who has some sort of power over him. Wow. End quote. Moving, wow. moving on to the map, 
Kerr again with her eyes closed. By the way, going back to that black, I don't know. Do you remember I said that Andre drove a black truck? Uh, yes. So yes. must be he got rid of his vehicle because Elise is like, no, he drives a white car. Well, now that he's a carpenter, he has a black truck. She doesn't realize that. Oh, my gosh. She lives in Cal- amazing. She lives in California. Sure. Right. She's so she's like, not yeah. seeing him every day. Right. So moving on to the map again, she closed her eyes, ran her fingers over the state of Louisiana, which she has never visited. She said she saw water, a long row, low bridge over water and a long beach. And the number seven, Andre's body was found by exit seven, just off the elevated highway on a little strip of, of sand in the Manchek Swamp. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And then her fingers started to tingle. She stopped, opened her eyes, and read the name of the town beneath her fingers. Slidell. Go there, she said. I'm getting a strong confirmation, lady. Go there quickly. Oh, my gosh. And this is exactly where they found him? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So, it's nearly midnight in Louisiana when Elise calls with the psychic's message. The little band of family and friends that had been out all day out all day searching, and now they were ready to turn in. But because of her call, they're like, "Nope, we're gonna go. We're gonna go." And this this is a quote from the article um, from his brother Chris. Everyone felt it. We all got goosebumps, started crying. We knew somehow this was it. We ran out into the yard, and my sister said a prayer. Then we jumped into three cars and started out towards Slidell. I was driving. Joey, Nick, and my wife, Virginia, were with me. Joey's the other brother. We all kept talking to Andre, telling him we were coming, because that's what the psychic said we should do. All right, you're going to get me. I know. You're getting me. As they were going down the interstate, excuse me, as we, this is still a quote from Chris, as we were going down the interstate, just before the five-mile bridge to Slidell, Joey shouts, that's it, that's the truck. Joey knew because he recognized the scratch mark on the side. So Chris said, I pulled alongside and there is Andre's truck. These two guys were still driving it. So I fall back and yell at my sister in the other car. You get off and call mom. Tell her to call the police. They were still there. Yeah. The They're Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They were there. They found them in Slidell. Mm-hmm. Wow. So she said, he said, tell her to call the police. The city, state, everyone. Tell them that we are going east on I-10. My sister exits and we keep on behind the truck. But then I can tell they realize that they're being followed. They start trying to fake us out, making like they're going to an exit and then at the last minute swerving back onto I-10. But I stayed with them. Then they turn off onto Highway 11 outside of Pearl River. Now we are following them down a dark, deserted highway surrounded by nothing but trees. And I'm thinking my sister is going to tell the police we're on the interstate but I'm also thinking we can't lose them. They're the only link we have to Andre because they're driving Andre's truck. Right, right. So we ride like this for a while, and then I see the road is coming to a dead end, and the truck pulls up at the dead end and turns around, and the lights go off like they're waiting for us. About 50 yards from the dead end, there is a bar room. So I stop, and Nick runs in to call the police. Just then, the truck's lights come back on and it starts inching towards us, going real slow. I tell Virginia to lay down on the floorboards and Joey, who has a thirty-eight with him, I open the doors and crouch behind them, using them as shields. When the truck gets up alongside us and they see us crouching like that, I don't know what they thought. Maybe that we're cops or something, but they take off hauling ass. We take off after them and by some miracle, there on this deserted road, we had just driven down maybe... Five minutes before, 
there is now a parked police car. Oh, wow. I was wondering if the police were going to pull through. I'm not going to lie. Well, this wasn't, this was not one that was responding to their 911 call. This was one just out doing road duty and was parked. Oh, okay. Yeah. So even though they had just like just five minutes before they'd been on this road, because technically now they're like turning around because they came to a dead end. So they're turned around and going back the other way towards the same roads that they'd already been on. So now just miraculously, there is a parked police car. We start yelling, all of us at once, but the cop can't follow what we're trying to say. So Virginia shows him the flyer with Andre's picture, and the cop gives chase after the black truck. We followed behind him, all of us going around 100 miles an hour. Oh, my God! I would have done the same thing. Like This is is crazy. For sure. But, oh, my gosh, talk about, like, some kind of divine intervention. There's a cop I, just sitting there. I agree. I agree. This happened to me once uh, in CPS. We actually had a child abduction that was taking place like right. Uh, it was on my case, but it was taking place in, in the cop that I was with was like, jump in your car. Let's go. Well, I didn't realize like I'm just following him going 100 miles an hour as he's following this vehicle that's got this kid. I didn't realize he didn't want me to go as fast as he was going. <laughs> but and you're like, like and I was I'm like, we're going to get this, you know, get this kid back. Cause yeah. Yeah. Afterwards he was like, so that was some crazy driving. You weren't supposed to actually follow me. I'm like, well, how else was I going to help the kid? I don't know what I was thinking, but it was fine. It ended up just fine. You drive up beside the car and like jump on it, like in the action movie. <laughs> right. Exactly. I have no idea what I thought I was doing other than I'm like, this is what I told him. Like that, they've got my the kid that I need. Like right. they're running away with this child. Yeah, good times. So when Pearl River Police Chief Benny Rayner saw the two scruffy-looking white male, he thought he was dealing with nothing more than a stolen truck. That's why he thought he was chasing the truck. Because remember, he has no idea. They just showed him like this flyer, and they're yelling like, "Go get them! Go get them!" Uh-huh. So he's like, "Okay, now they did have a Magnum pistol, like a, a nine mag- millimeter." Gun with along with a duffel bag full of ammunition that was found in the truck's cab that did make him think, okay, maybe this isn't just a stolen car. But Michael Phillips was brought into the chief's office first. Phillips said that he didn't know anything. Gervais had shown up with the truck at their hotel. That's all. He wouldn't answer any more questions. He wanted an attorney. Now, remember how I had said that they dumped Andre's body and then they went to a hotel and just tried to lay low for a few days. Yes. That hotel was in Slidell that the psychic had said, go to Slidell, you will find them. That's how they found them. It's a small town, but that's where they were laying low. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. When Gervais saw Phillips writing down what he took to be a much more damning statement, one that would perhaps throw all the blame on him, he jumped up and demanded to see the chief. So now he's like, okay, the, the the police just handled handed him a pencil and paper to write something down like what you know what's going on he's afraid it's all going to be pinned on him so as soon as he enters the police chief's office Gervais shouts to the chief all right we did it we killed him oh my god Gervais the one who's the mastermind the mastermind was like oh this isn't going to be all pinned on me nope he thought that Phillips was like you know, essentially telling the truth about how they were kind of under his influence or whatever. Yeah. So he's, all right, we did it. We killed him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, it would take a while. It took more than a year and a half before the events of that week finally came to a resolution. 
When his body was recovered from the Manchank Swamp, the autopsy revealed 11 fractures of the skull caused caused by a claw hammer. And I, sorry, this is a quote from the article and just trigger alert. His brains literally had been beaten out and he had also been strangled. Gosh. They told where the body could be found, but it was, but it was exactly where the psychic also said that it would be. So they found him from them giving a confession, but... Elise had already been told that information as well. This is like the most amazing psychic yeah. story I've ever heard. Yeah. Charles Gervais, Gervais pled guilty and to second degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the benefit of a pardon, probation, or parole. But he did manage to achieve briefly notoriety as he so coveted. You know, he wanted to be, he had theories of grandeur. I mean, I think that sure. much is obvious. You know, I question if they would have been able to take this mob on, he buckled pretty quickly. He, for sure. Something uh, tells me they may they not have probably, been successful. I'm going to say probably not. The The first sex worker that they encountered probably would have taken them both down. Oh, without a question. They're far stronger than these two men. I'm guessing sure. that IQs may not have been off the charts. I'm with the three of these people. Very reasonable guess, Amber. Thank you. So he Gervais often tried to compare himself to Charles Manson. Oh, so Uh that he was going for like a Manson thing with the, even with the idea. Okay, I see it. What he does is he tries to spin this and say that Andre's murder was actually an an initiation right into. He didn't do anything. Right. It was an initiation right into the culture of the Satan worshipers who operated in New Orleans warehouse district, which again, satanic panic. It's 1987. It wasn't like so many Murderers tried to blame satanic worshipers. Oh, and if yeah. you ever even actually look into what Satanism is, it is not at all what people thought it was back in the 80s and 90s. And I actually have a really interesting case that I am working on that has to do with this that is going to blow your mind. Oh. So stay tuned for that. But He's like the wish version of Charles Manson. I'd say. <laughs> I shouldn't even say that because I don't want to glorify Manson, but it's like he's like the generic. Right. Like it's even way. All he's doing is looking at what's going on in the news at the time. Like, oh, Manson, Manson has a cult. Oh, people. Yeah, we should do that too. People brought in this satanic panic. And so guess what? Oh, I'm a Satan worshiper. And this was an initiation. His murder was just an initiation. And the other two are like, nah. We just wanted to take over the prostitution ring from the mafia family in Houston, and he told us we needed to do this to prove our worthiness. Like, oh my god! Yeah. In other words, he's like, I did get these two morons to do something with me that was pretty serious. So yeah, I'm Charles Manson. Oh, it's gross. Barf. Gross. The fact that neither of his two confessions mentioned anything of the kind, and that there was no indication of Satanism in the apartment, did not dampen the appetite of the media for a brief moment. For all of this bravado. So they they did try to like spin that for a little bit about him. So he got a little bit of the attention and notoriety that he wanted, but it wasn't legitimate. Uh, Gervais went as far as to sue Jefferson Paris Sheriff Harry Lee for infringing on his rights to religious freedom by not letting him practice satanic rites while in jail. And he apparently even conned Geraldo... Uh, 
Geraldo Rivera into traveling all the way to Angola State Penitentiary to tape his version of the story for national TV. I was going to say, I remember him. I Uh, couldn't find it. It was Geraldo. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't find it. So I don't know if he... If it never aired or, whoops, sorry, I just about flipped the table over. Yeah, I don't know if it didn't air or if it's just not really easily accessible anymore because this was 1987. Right. I don't own a VHS anymore. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they're a but, little obsolete now. Yeah. Michael Phillips also pled guilty to second degree murder. Thelma Horn stood trial and was convicted. She tried to plead innocent. Well, I'm glad that because she was just as much a part of this. Yep. So she, she, she also was convicted by a jury for murder. They are both serving life sentences as well. Good. So everybody did. Kerr stayed in touch with the Diego family and with the prosecutor um, that helped Mr. LeBlanc, that helped the family because she did additional forensic readings from this point on with the Heck yeah. Mm-hmm, with the prosecution. Now, Kerr credits the family's love and dedication as much as her own paranormal gifts with the with solving the murder. Look at her humble. Well, like, she's mm. like it's easier because they were all such a close knit family, so there was that connection. That gives me the warm fuzzies. Mm-hmm. Is what she all was of the feels saying. She said that although some concerted energy of goodness had overtaken and, and vanished of vicious but ultimately less potential force of evil. So, in other words, she's like. What helped solve it is that, yes, there was a huge force of evil at, at state, you know, at risk here. But their goodness, this family's goodness of their love for each other helped defeat that. Aww. I mean, if you think about it, there's three perpetrators here. So the trials were exhausting. There was mistrials. There were motions. There was all kinds of stuff. We see this Like every time. We do. And so before the cases, all three of them could finally be closed and this family could finally have closure. They went through all of that. And each time the courtroom was always packed with friends and family of Andre Diego. Which I thought was just a really beautiful thing that because some people could get really burnt out on that. I mean, all three of them had three separate trials. Yes. One trial alone is enough for a lifetime of someone. It takes it takes years off your life. But for to have sure. to go through three, then they had some mistrials, then they had appeals, and just in general waiting for it all to happen because we know the court system doesn't move quickly with scheduling trials. So I just really felt that that and they stood each the and every time, every time. Yes, the whole family was and friends were always there. I love that. At his funeral service in St. Matthew's Church, there were no empty seats and barely room to stand. With a huge silent crowd followed the casket to Garden of Memory Cemetery where Andre Diego was laid to rest. His headstone reads loved by so many. And it was so true. Absolutely. And his family, I wanted to end about Andre on this quote his family said at his funeral what this is his his brother Chris again at his funeral what struck me most was that so many many people came up and said he was my best friend oh my goodness right like that just doesn't sound like such a good guy and and here he is just this girl asked for a ride home and he out of his good nature was like okay sure and I don't know you know what made him go in to hang out with her if she was like, let's have a nightcap. Let you know he just wanted to see. He's a twenty-seven-year-old single guy. Sure. I mean, come on, that sure, could happen anytime. Yeah, and so, like you said, we may never know that 
part, but it still was something. I mean, he helped her out, and this is just horrible. This, the reason he died is so. It's just so senseless. It makes me so sad. It's one of the most senseless. Not that any murder makes sense. No, no, but but. it's one of the most senseless. I think that we have ever covered for sure like you said it it did really remind me very much of the wonderful um family or couple that was taken tom and jackie tom and jackie for their yacht for the yacht yes and they planned on stealing the bank you know like their money their money but Mm -hmm. the plan was so stupid it was never gonna work it never Yep. They were caught so quickly, and yep. it's like this couple died for that, and it's same. it mm-hmm. does have that kind of feel to it. So I did want to give you a little more information on Rosemary Kerr. Now, she did die in 2015, Oh, and she was the first psychic ever to be placed on the witness stand in a murder trial. Really? That was Andre's trial. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. I am going to look her up later because this is just, I mean— it's incredible what she did for this case. She has she has a blog up, and I just wanted to read this to you. This is to, from her blog. It says, Welcome to my world. It said, As a child of four, I dreamed that my uncle was going to burn down his house with my aunt and cousin inside. The dream felt so powerful, I woke up screaming. My parents and my aunt assured me that it was just a nightmare. Two, le- two weeks later, I woke to the roar of fire trucks and shouting across the street. My uncle had locked my aunt and cousin in the bathroom, saturated their home with kerosene, and set the place ablaze. Fortunately, my aunt and cousin managed to climb out a second-story window. They escaped, but my uncle didn't. Didn't He rotted in prison. I thought you'd want some closure to how that I thing. did. I actually mm-hmm. was wondering if the what happened with the... F- the family because that's horrible yep yep so good news they did not perish all through my my school years in Brooklyn I had dreams and premonitions that became a reality but these were an anathema in my large Italian family so I kept my gift to myself I felt different odd that I knew too much sometimes but who could I tell I took refuge in books and my artwork I was always terrified of fire I still am Whenever I heard a fire engine, I would hide my head under a pillow. So, of course, I married a firefighter, a young Irish man named Jim, who asked me to skate the couple's dance at the Bay Ridge Roller Rink. As we headed out for the first skate, I heard in my head, you're going to marry that boy. And I said to myself, oh, brother, I don't even know him. <laughs> That's I like so that. She had a premonition just yeah. from her, you know, grabbing his hand and going out for the first skate of like, here it is. You're going to, which to me kind of answers the questions of like, do psychics ever see their own futures? You know, I mean, I guess sometimes I guess they, they can do. Happen. She said, my husband and I ended up settling in Southern California where we raised four sons and a daughter. I always knew I had a gift, but never really took the time to develop it until my children were grown and I began helping out as a minister at a non-denominational church. I believed in my wonderful spiritual guides, and I finally learned to believe in me, too. In 1987, a frantic woman visited me and asked me to help her find her brother, Andre Diagle, a young man who had vanished 2,000 miles away in New Orleans. I didn't realize it at the time, but the Diagle case would open doors for me as I helped the police solve Andre's brutal slaying, beginning my life's work as a psychic detective. Prosecutors later brought me to Louisiana to testify during the trials of two suspects accused of ambushing and killing Andre Diagle. You know, I wish I would have known uh, Rosemary. Yes. She sounds like an awesome lady. Mm -hmm. She said, since then, I have assisted law enforcement agencies throughout the United States and traveled overseas to help unravel a centuries-old 
archaeological mystery in Northern Ireland. I want to look that up and cover Uh, that. Yes. My work has been featured in newspapers, magazines, TV shows, and books, including Blood Will Tell, the New Orleans True Crime Saga by author Joe Bosco. I tried to look that book up and read it for this case because I I think that that is Andre's case, but I'm not sure. And I can't, I could couldn't not, find it. no, I couldn't find it. Most recently, I appeared in four outstanding episodes on Discovery TV's international broadcast of the Psychic Witness series, which ran on the Learning Channel in the U.S. This series also aired in Europe, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines and Brazil. In October 2006, I also filmed two upcoming shows for Court TV. So she says that she was starting her website in an online journal about her world, her philosophy, and her latest projects. I hope that my experiences will encourage others to develop their own abilities. I believe that each person is born with gifts of the spirit and that it's up to each individual to develop these gifts through the mind and the body. Call it intuition or whatever you like. It's all about listening to the little voices inside. Thank you for stopping by to visit. Love and light, Rosemary. I love it. Yeah. I want to be a psychic. Right. She she is, Miss Kerr is saying it is possible. And she used it for the greater good. And honestly, if it wasn't for her, I don't know that they would have solved this case. The police were not helping. The police were not helping. And, and I apologize, did I say earlier when I was talking about the readings, Rosemary Kerr? I think so, or maybe I, think, I misspoke, because I, I said Rosemary. I might have, and so I want to apologize, um, especially if any of her family is listening, it is Rosemary Kerr. Um, rest in peace, Mo- Rosemary, it sounds like you are a beautiful light in our world. Yeah, I seriously would have loved to know her. She sounds yes. like an amazing person. I did see too, as I was running into what, what little information is out there about this case. Um, I did see one of her granddaughters commented on a blog post that somebody did about her. And she was like, Oh, that was my beautiful grandmother. Aww. And so I thought that that was really, really cute. They're still out there like talking about her talents that she had and what she brought to the world. So I agree with you, though, without her intervention, they wouldn't have went to Slidell. Exactly. At all. And I, I did read this dude that did a blog. I can't remember his name now, but he was like, mm, it's really not that remarkable. You know, if you look at a map of Louisiana, anywhere that you point, there's going to be like a bridge and there's going to be water because Louisiana is covered in it. I'm like, OK, but she saw, you know, she did say the black truck. Now, Elise, even though Elise was like, no, he drives a white car. Like, she did not know that her brother had a black truck now. Yeah. But then sh- they wouldn't have went to Slidell. No, and that it's the entire state, yeah, sir. Exactly. Don't minimize that she helped pinpoint yep. exactly where they were. Right. And not to mention his body being found right off of exit 7. She said she saw a 7. So I just think there's a lot here to be, you know, when people are like, oh, that's just coincidental. There's just a lot. There's too many details to, for me to feel like that's coincidental or that there are, you know, the, the statistical chances are pretty slim. That I don't I don't know. I will when not. I was reading that article, I was like, man, that's a stretch. But either way, it gave them a sense of urgency of go to Slidell. And they ran into his, those two yeah. people driving his truck. So. I will not chalk this one up to coincidence. I will Mm-mm. not. Because they, they had no guidance from the police. They were just blindly no. searching and didn't know. And it breaks my heart that the police told them we're going to put a be on the lookout and didn't. That's that so hurts sad. hurts my heart just so as much. Human, like, what kind of a crappy human are you? To Well, maybe he ran off with a hooker. I don't know. I, we I, don't know. I couldn't imagine those words coming out of my mouth. That would to be so painful. family. No. And and then I hope I hope that he 
found out what really happened after that and really evaluated himself. I hope so too. Uh, do you want a brain bath? I do. Of course. For our brain bath today, I want to say thank you to my friend Sarah who sent this. She listens and she sent this lovely uplifting story. And it's actually just recent. It is from um, this actually that she sent me is from Cody.org. But it's recent from October 7th, 2021. So some people might have seen this in the news and read it and been like, oh, that's so great. This is the title. The crane that fell in love with her human keeper. Oh, that just sounds sweet. It is sweet. And you have to see the crane's name is Walnut. Adorable. Yes, she's beautiful. What? I'll show you a picture I was of her say, when I, I want to see turn, Walnut. When I can turn my screen here. Look at Walnut. Oh, she's beautiful. She does look like a walnut too. She does. And she's just staring lovingly. Yes, she is. <laughs> yes. So Walnut is a white-naped crane that lives in a Virginia endangered species breeding facility. She's 23 years old, was raised by humans, and developed a reputation for murdering potential mates. Oh, yes. Walnut. <laughs> we could do many cases on Walnut. <laughs> yes. Walnut's not playing. She will not settle for just anyone. Girl wants to find the one. Yep. And she was. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. And she was. That's what made it even more difficult. So she's endangered. So they're trying to use her to be able to help save their species. Sure. But she's like, no, evolution. We're not just settling for just any old crane. <laughs> You're not going to throw some dusty crane no. in here for no. me to mate with. We don't want no scrubs. <laughs> yes. That is where Walnut is at. I love so, that she wouldn't just ignore them. She's just going she to would murder them. eliminate yes, them. Yeah. No wonder why you're an endangered species, Walnut. <laughs> God. Oh, my gosh. But Walnut eventually found a good match in bird keeper Chris Crow, which is funny that he has a bird last name as well. <laughs> That's perfect. So Chris Crow is a 42-year-old human that she imprinted with. Oh, and she, she's like, this is him. This, this is, is him. the one. So Crow, as part of his duties at the zoo, has embraced his role as Walnut's mate in order to artificially inseminate her. Oh, stop. With, I didn't see it going this yeah, way. <laughs> with semen from a male crow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my yes. goodness. So, which I grew up on a farm. Okay. Artificial insemination is a part of it. It's not pretty. It's not a great experience. Extracting the semen from the animal, also not a great experience. I have seen. I would imagine not. I have seen far too many boars jacked off for for a lifetime, frankly, everyone. But I am calling not it on that duty. <laughs> it's not. Everyone just thank a farmer, okay, always. For sure. It's not easy. So it's essentially the same thing. I mean, they have to get the crow, the, or excuse me, the crane sperm. So it's essentially the same thing, you know, for the crane, they have to extract the sperm and then inseminate. This is a quote from the article. That summer, however, Crane noticed that Walnut seemed interested in him. When Crow, yeah, when Crow stopped by her yard, she would bow her head and raise her wings, which are motions that Crow now recognizes as the first moves of the mating dance. So she was like putting the vibes out she was. for Chris. Absolutely. She, she's doing her thing. He said, quote, at first I thought she was just excited to see me. Crow says, but then she, then I'd see the other pairs doing the same things, and it kind of dawned on me. Crow accepted Walnut's invitation to dance, but he felt a little sil silly. He bobbed his head when Walnut bobbed hers <laughs> and raised and lowered his arms like wings. 
the two circled each other, and sometimes Walnut would make a loud trumpeting call, the beginning of the white-naped crane love duet. She was wanting her some crow. And she's a strong woman. I appreciate that she knows what she wants. She murders what she doesn't. (laughs) And she goes after what she does. This is my favorite story ever. All you single ladies, we can learn a thing or two. I'm inspired by Walnut. Don't murder the bad Tinder dates, okay? Noted. Yes, but maybe just drop block them. Drop them out of your DMs. That's good enough. Ghost them, if you will. Right. Don't actually murder them. I love that she wasn't putting out vibes until she found the right one. Right. She Exactly. And she's as, like, here's here's my head, Bob. As we all should. She literally did not mess around with other cranes. No, no, she did not. <laughs> it's not like she was playing the field. Okay. She knew those ones were scrubs. Yep. No casual crane, no. you know, hookups. No. Right. She was holding out. No one night stands for her no Mm -mm. if no one was around crow would try to do the male part of the song making a homer simpson like woohoo but walnut never found his efforts satisfactory Mm. as the weather cooled so did walnut's adore but in the spring walnut began greeting her keeper with bows again so this gave crow an idea if walnut thought he was her mate maybe crow could make that year's artificial insemination less stressful for both of them Because the first time they tried to inseminate her, it went really badly, from what I understand from another article that I found. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was was pretty traumatic. And so they just decided they were not going to try to inseminate her anymore because, I mean— She's a bad bitch. Like right. she murdered other crows. So, right. or I mean, other cranes. So no, they didn't want to harm her. Like, cause, sure, because it can be. It's kind of a bit of a physical act. So right, yeah. So they just decided they were just gonna have her and just not inseminate her anymore. So like you know, if we can, if we could get her to do it without actually having to catch her and pin her down. That means there's no stress and less risk less risk of injury. Sure. So Crow says it's much better for us and for the crane. So as far as they knew, it had never been done before, but it seemed like a good thing that they could try. Crow so, just needed some Barry White music. and Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Let's get it on. Bob has had a little that's bit. That's right. He did, and that's what, what he did. Like an old couple, Crow and Walnut have fallen into a comfortable routine after, quote, mating with Crow, Walnut will often lay unfertilized eggs. Crow replaces them with fake ones. The real ones would rot and get eaten by by actual crows. Which <laughs> <laughs> is funny. Thank you for clarifying. Yes. I will say Mr. Crow's last name is C-R-O-W-E. <laughs> So, yeah, but yeah, so the other eggs would, you know, the unfertilized eggs would, would rot and be eaten by other things, but which would prompt walnut to lay more. So the, the bird then spends long hours sitting on the dummy eggs. So crow helps her out whenever he gets a chance. I go over and stand near her and the nest and I say, you take a break and she'll wander off. She'll go down the creek and take a bath. Then she walks back after 15 or 20 minutes and she's ready to sit back on the eggs again. On the nest again. Now, something interesting that I've learned about crows, or crows, I keep saying that, sorry, cranes, after researching this a little bit, they mate for life and they do, they are a partnership. So when he comes in and says, like, go take a break, she assumes he's going to sit on those eggs and she can go just like he's a little daddy crane. That's adorable. So she goes for her self care day. Like, I'm going to go take my bath. Yes. His, this article says, though he does he does his best to not be a deadbeat dad, Crow knows that he falls short of Crane's standards. 
These are creatures that once paired up rarely lose sight of their partner. And he's like, listen, I'm not great. I disappear every weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, typical man. No, I'm just kidding. She's like, Walnut loves him unconditionally. And he says, the ideal partner doesn't exist. You have to accept certain things that people can't change. I mean, she puts up with me even though I can't dance or sing. And he and he disappears for two days. Right? Uh, you know? But that's her, I like how that's she's her like, partner. You know what? This I love him. This is this is my partner. And, you know, yeah, he's not perfect. He does leave me a couple of days a week to go sow his wild oats, whatever. Right. He's, <laughs> he's actually going home to his actual his wife. Actual wife, yeah. Yeah. Aww. One article that I found on this was really funny because he's like, Oh, I've heard all of the jokes. Like absolutely oh, sure. all of the jokes. So, so did she actually have little babies? Yeah, they. I don't know. I don't know. It does not say. It just it just kind of explains that they're able to inseminate her, and, and he actually continues with the the real bird mating like dance and ritual. Like she, they it doesn't require anyone else to be involved. Just him and her because she will do the pose. To be bred. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So they, you know, they do inseminate, inseminate her, but I do not know if any of if the- If she's had babies. Mm-hmm, if it's been vi- any viable thing, it doesn't carry on to And say, no pressure to walnut. She doesn't have to have babies she, if she doesn't want to. For sure. For sure. Especially because she may eat them if she doesn't want them that anyway. Happening. <laughs> um, but yes. at least this way they can try since she is an endangered species without it being traumatic. And I like really respect this guy. And, and what is he going to do when he retires? Because cranes can live a really long time. I didn't even know they could live that long. Yes, they can live a really long time. Um, that was in another article. I'm sorry that I forgot to um, take note of that, but they they can, and so that is kind of a concern of like what's going to happen. For when. sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, isn't that just an uplifting and such a cute? I love story? it. <laughs> that so, was my favorite story I've heard in a long time. Thanks to our listener friend Sarah who sent that article this way. If you guys run into f- to funny. Or like really cute articles or have a personal story of your own. Crimecurious at yahoo.com or hit us up on any of our social messaging um, platforms as well because we'll, we will make note of them for brain baths and put them on air and let oh, us know sure. if we can say your name. And if it's an embarrassing story about yourself, we'll keep you anonymous. Don't worry. And uh, yeah, so hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next week for Charnel's birthday week. Yay. And um, yeah, keep it curious, everyone. So curious. Until next time. Bye-bye.